Glad to see all of you here. Last month we discussed the first phase of the communist revolution in Russia in 1917, which took place in February by Russia's ancient Julian calendar. Today we will describe the ultimate revolution in Russia, personally directed by Lenin, the revolution maker. By the Russian calendar, this one happened in October or in November by a Gregorian calendar. You may have heard some Russian glorification of the October Revolution. This is it. You will recall that when the February Revolution broke out, Lenin was far away in Switzerland uh, with no apparent way to get to Russia. Just three weeks later, the Germans solved Lenin's problem. They sent him into Russia to make his ultimate revolution, unable to see beyond his determination to take Russia out of the war as Kerensky's provisional government and even the original Petrograd Soviet would not. But the new young Austrian emperor, Blessed Karl, would become Austrian emperor on the death of the aged Franz Joseph at the end of 1916. Alone of all the leaders of the warring powers had tried sincerely to make peace during the winter and spring of 1917. Karl was too good a Catholic to think that evil means could ever lead to good ends. Quote, once communism got established in Russia, his wife Zita remembered him saying, it wouldn't stop there, but it would spread, and both Germany and Austria could become engulfed. Evil could only breed evil, end quote. The Germans first planned to send Lenin from Switzerland through Austria to Russia, but Karl refused to let the revolutionary cross his territory. The German government, probably dismissing Karl as hopelessly naive, routed him by Lenin by train and boat from Switzerland through Germany, caused by the fact that Germany, um, Sweden and Finland to St. Petersburg in Russia. Enormous confusion was caused by the fact that the Germans paid his way on this epical, world-changing journey. The Germans thought they were using him, but in fact he was using them. The whole nation of Germany would pay a thousand times over for that gigantic crime, which was to haunt a whole German generation. Lenin's revolution transformed the history of the 20th century. After a farewell lunch in Zurich, Switzerland, Lenin set out with his party on the most important train trip in the history of the world. Lenin was never to see Switzerland again. Russia and the world were now his stage. The train, typically Swiss, if you've ever been in Switzerland, you know how the trains are always exactly on time, pulled out exactly on time at 3.10 p.m. April 9th, Easter Monday in the West. Across Germany, the train was sealed. No words were exchanged between the party of Russians and any Germans but the soldier guards. They took the ferry for Sweden and then crossed into Russia. Exiled more than 15 years, Lenin had become a legend in his own time, the mountain eagle of the revolution, the man of iron will far away, the relentless man who never faltered, never slackened, who always knew exactly where he was going. In the last of his letters from afar, sent from Zurich, March 25th, 
Lenin had made his purpose completely clear. Both Lenin and Hitler told the world before they came to power exactly what they intended to do with it uh, when they got it, and they did exactly what they said. But it was so evil, no one believed them. Power in Russia, Lenin said, must go to, quote, a government of the workers and poorest peasants, organized on the model of the Soviets of workers and peasants' deputies. Namely, it must smash, completely eliminate the old state machine, the army, the police force, and the bureaucracy that is common to all bourgeois states, and substitute for this machine not only a mass organization, but a universal organization of the entire armed people, end quote. The ultimate revolution was in the making. The reign of terror, which had bathed Paris in 1792 in blood, was to be reborn in Russia, and from it the revolution would go forth to conquer the world. At 11 o'clock in the evening, March 16th, the Russian Easter Monday, a national holiday, Lenin arrived at the Finland station in Petrograd. The Bolsheviks, had, as his party, had prepared a tremendous welcome for him. The station blazed with red banners. There were triumphal arches decorated with red ribbons and revolutionary slogans. Everywhere was red, the color of blood, Lenin's favorite color. Searchlights from St. Peter and St. Paul Fortress, Fortress played on the station's station square, filled with workers carrying red banners and torches. On the platform where Lenin's train arrived, were large numbers of soldiers, sailors, and Red Guard militia. A band played the French Revolutionary Anthem, La Marseillaise. Lenin reviewed the troops as though he were already their commander. He knew that his hour had struck. He addressed the crowd with total confidence. Quote, I greet you as the vanguard of the world proletarian army. The predatory imperialist war is the beginning of a civil war all over Europe. Any day now we shall see the collapse of European imperialism. The Russian revolution you have made has prepared the way and opened a new epoch. End quote. The soldiers and sailors carried Lenin on their shoulders out to the station square with its cheering masses, lifting him up to the turret of an armored car so that he might speak to them from it as from a pulpit. He stood on the turret, stamping his feet, clenching and unclenching his fists, and shouting revolutionary slogans, which the crowd echoed back. They sensed the elemental force of the man, knew they were in the presence of a maker of history. In the surging wake of a revolution just one month old, directed personally by a man who had devoted his life to making just such a revolution, so much that was familiar in their city and their country had already dissolved. No doctrine could seem too wild, no call to action too strident, no denunciation too harsh. Lenin knew it. No man in all history, all history has known better how to take advantage of a, fun, a fundamental political opportunity. He did not waste an hour or a minute. His armored car led a procession of vehicles from the Finland station to the nearby Kshesinskaya Palace, which the Bolsheviks had commandeered. 
at the palace from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock Tuesday morning, April 17th, Lenin spoke to the Bolshevik leaders. Marxist journalist Nikolai Sukhanov, who was there, felt the ultimate revolution as an almost physical presence. Quote, quoting Sukhanov, It seemed as if all the elemental forces had risen from their lairs, and the spirit of universal destruction, which knows no obstacles, no doubts, neither human no human calculations, circled in Krasinskaya's hall above the heads of the enchanted disciples, quote. When it was over, Sukhanov said, quote, I felt as if I'd been beaten about the head with flails, end quote. Lenin's cries still rang in his ears. All power to the Soviets! Down with the provisional government! No concessions to those who wanted to carry on the war! We don't need any parliamentary republic. We don't need any bourgeois democracy. Confiscate all property and land. Nationalize all the banks. Abolish the army, the bureaucracy, and the police. And finally, since the majority of social democrats all over the world have betrayed socialism and gone over to the side of the government, in my own name, I propose that the name of the party be changed to the Communist Party. Have the will to build a new party, end quote. Thus was the Communist Party born and named, driven by the irresistible will of Lenin, the history maker. These Lenin's overwhelming April theses were officially presented next morning to the Bolsheviks' delegates to the All-Russian Conference of Soviets. They were too much even for the Bolsheviks at first. The Bolshevik Central Committee rejected them later that day by the apparently decisive vote of 13 to 2. But Lenin was making his revolution and would not be turned aside from it even by his own friends and associates. He was contemptuous of their opposition. By sheer force of will, he broke most of his opponents in face-to-face encounters. By the time of the... Our Russian Conference of Soviets met in Petrograd, May 7th, 12th. Lenin was in full control. He opened the conference and was elected to the party central committee with more votes than anyone else. He never stopped repeating his demand for all power to the Soviets, which would, he said, establish a state of the Paris Commune type, destroying the entire structure of the old state the very program of the April Theses. Lenin was deliberately losing anarchy on Russia. Opposition within his party melted away. And now Trotsky, the ablest Bolshevik except for Lenin, a great orator, had arrived and for the first time since 1903 accepted Lenin's authority. And still the war continued. No power on earth could break its bonds. Pope Benedict XV had tried and failed, Emperor Karl of Austria had tried and failed. No one else even tried. The killing went on unabated by a searing irony which makes satanic mockery of 20th century man one of the main reasons of the communism triumphed in Russia in the fall of 1917 was that the party of ultimate revolution under Lenin's leadership could present itself as the only party in favor of peace. Real peace could now come only from beyond this world. That is why 
the Blessed Virgin Mary came to Fatima in Portugal in that same fearful year, 1970. In Russia, Kerensky and a new provisional government, which was a coalition of Duma and Soviet, committed the fantastic folly of not only remaining in the shattering and useless conflict, but also of launching a new offensive that summer, led by General Brusilov. In July, the first machine gun regiment at Petrograd, which had just been ordered to the front to support the diluted new offensive, and the sailors of the great naval base at Kronstadt, demonstrated in the streets of the capital, fully armed and shouting Lenin's slogan, All Power to the Soviets. Lenin did not yet believe that the time was ripe for his ultimate revolution. He refused to endorse the plan unplanned July uprising, and without his support it fizzled out. The provisional government issued an order for his arrest, so Lenin went into hiding in a hay hut in Finland, where he remained undetected for a month. Then he remained in Helsinki, the Finnish capital, for another month, still undetected, while keeping closely in touch with his Bolshevik party and its activities in Petrograd by mail and the press. September 1917 marked six months since Sergeant Kapitschnikov's February Revolution, which he talked about last month, uh, which had overthrown the Tsar. During those six months, the slow, inexorable tide of social disintegration had been flowing through the vastness of the Russian Empire. Like an immense sand dune undermined by waves at its base, the whole social order of Russia during those six months softened, crumbled, and slid away into the deep. This was not primarily the work of the communists, nor of any political combination or faction, but only the communists welcomed the disintegration, aiding the undermining surge whenever they could, rejoicing in every slippage and collapse because it brought the ultimate revolution closer. And Lenin in particular rejoiced because he saw the moment for, he worked all his, for which he had worked all his life approaching. There was now nothing to hold the huge country together. The Tsar had been the linchpin, but there had been no Tsar since Sergeant Kapitschnikov's revolution in February, March. With the Tsar removed without a successor, no government had legitimacy nor any basis in law or tradition. They had called a, what they called a constituent assembly to try to draw up a constitution for Russia, but they never scheduled it. meeting. Meanwhile, the war was still going on. The insane offensive called by Kerensky and led by General Brusilov that summer had reminded everyone of its existence and menace. In ever-growing numbers, the soldiers were going home. By the end of August, there had been, since the overthrow of the Tsar, two million desertions from an army mustering a maximum strength of seven million. Thousands more soldiers deserted every day. There was no way to stop them. Officers who antagonized their mutinous men, especially by attempting to <coughs> restore order and discipline, were shot out of hand with virtually no fear of punishment. The officers could function only by going through a bewildering maze of elected soldiers' committees. Increasingly, there was always a Bolshevik on every soldiers' committee, 
working deliberately to speed the collapse of discipline. An equal breakdown was occurring on the land. No more than 10% of the Russian peasants had enough land of their own to support themselves and their families above the poverty level. The great bulk of the land was divided between the estates of the large landowners and tracked still in communal ownership by the villages. For generations, the Russian peasants had yearned for and dreamed of land of their own. Their land hunger had been restrained by fear of the government's troops and loyalty to the Tsar. Now there were no government troops and there was no Tsar. So the peasants struck. The full story of the ensuing horror can never be told. It was composed of 10,000 local tragedies of burning and looting and smashing and killing, which Lenin once said he loved. Of old scores settled and envy slaked. Of just and imaginary grievances all jumbled together and avenged in blood and ashes. Each tragedy a bit in a mosaic, which cannot be assembled completely because most of the records either never existed or vanished in the cataclysm. One bit of the mosaic, described by Harrison Salisbury in his History of the Russian Revolution, entitled Black Night, White Snow, from interviews and unpublished manuscripts, must suffice to give an impression of the whole. In Tambov province of central European Russia stood the model farm of Lotharevo, an internationally famous center of agricultural development and livestock breeding owned by the Vyazemsky family. In 1917, Lotharevo was managed by Boris Vyazemsky, a brilliant and popular young man of 33, well-liked by his neighbors, a liberal in politics, and a member of the Constitutional Democratic Party. Old grievances against the Vyazemsky family were recalled and reviewed, though none of them involved Boris. A Bolshevik agitator appeared in the area and urged an attack on Lotorevo. One August morning, a peasant mob came to Lotorevo. They warned Boris he was in danger, but he refused to flee. He tried to reason with the peasants, but they would not listen. They wanted him out. They wanted his land. The Bolsheviks encouraged them. The peasants said to Boris, quote, Have it as you will, Your Excellency, but we are for Lenin, and we will not retreat from him a single step. End quote. They decided to seize him and ship him to the front as a common soldier. The next day, a train full of deserters from the front pulled into the railroad station near Lodorevo. The deserters battered down the door of the room where he was staying and tore into pieces. At Lodorevo, the specially bred livestock were killed and their barns demolished. The great house was pillaged from ceiling to cellar until only a bare shell stood. When the National Congress of Soviets of Peasants and Deputies met in Petrograd in June, it adopted a model resolution for the expropriation of land. It began, quote, The right of private property in land is abolished forever. Land can neither be bought, sold, pledged, or alienated in any way. All land is taken over without compensation as the property of the whole people, end quote. 
In November, after he had come to full power, Lenin took this land expropriation resolution of the Congress of Peasant Soviets word for word as the legal foundation for the communist takeover and administration of every square foot of land in Russia, the greatest land seizure in history, responsible for untold human misery for 74 years. When communism in Russia fell at last at the end of the 20th century, Lenin's land law still remained in effect. It was as though Russians could conceive of no other way to live. On August 1st, Kerensky appointed a new commander-in-chief of the Russian army to replace the discredited Brusilov. He was Lavrov Georgievich Kornlov. He was superlatively brave and passionately patriotic. Now he saw his army and country dissolving before his eyes. On September 3rd, Kornilov received orders to send a cavalry corps to Petrograd to protect the government from the Bolsheviks. Kornilov, whose forthright Cossack mind had no place for revolutionaries, could see nothing in the Bolsheviks but German agents. He believed Lenin to be a traitor who ought to be hanged. Delighted with these orders, General Kornilov proposed Alexander Krymov's 3rd Cavalry Corps from the Caucasus for the Petrograd assignment. A petty intriguer named Vladimir Lvov now appeared upon the scene to change the course of history as few men of his small-minded type have ever been able to do. Vladimir Lvov was that unpleasant type of person who gains EO satisfaction from fishing in troubled waters, even without any clear objective in mind. Arriving in Mogilev, the army headquarters, September 6, Lvov told Kornlov that Kerensky had sent him to learn more about Kornlov's ideas as to how to save Russia. Kornlov, in fact, had not sent Lvov in any mission anywhere, but the naive Kornlov never suspected Lvov of lying. Three political options were being considered by the provisional government. Lvov declared weightily, dictatorship by Kerensky, a new streamlined cabinet called the Directory, with Kerensky a member, or dictatorship by Kornlov, with Kerensky and his cabinet. Which did Kornlov favor? His own dictatorship, he instantly replied. Assuming that the expected Bolshevik uprising had already occurred and had generated these proposals, Kornlov added that Kerensky should come to Mogilev at once where he could protect him better. Puffed up to bursting with the success of his ugly deception, Lvov the liar hurried back to Petrograd to tell Kerensky that General Kornlov was demanding his immediate resignation so that he could become dictator. Kerensky, too emotional at the best of times, became violently agitated. A coup was in the making. Kornilov wanted him to come to Mogilev so he could take him prisoner. To the end of his long life, to his death years later in the United States, Kerensky believed and said that Kornilov had announced his intention to revolt against him. Though we have the teletype tape of a conversation among all the principals which shows the truth. That all Kornilov ever wanted was to protect Kerensky against the Bolshevik uprising. Protection for which he was to stand in dire need in just a few days' time. 
Before the sun rose, Kerensky, described by those who saw him as, quote, in a state of complete hysteria, and, quote, wired Kornloff, dismissing him from command and ordering him to report immediately to Petrograd. Kerensky then issued a statement to the press giving his version of what had happened and charging Kornloff with treason. If ever there was a man who lost his nerve at a moment of world-shattering crisis, it was Alexander Kerensky this fateful morning in Petrograd. On that day, September 9th, the Sunday, all the socialists and revolutionary parties united clamorously against Kornloff. Railroad workers tore up the tracks south of Petrograd to prevent Krymov's Caucasian division traveling by train from reaching their city. Away in Helsinki, we can almost hear Lenin's sardonic chuckle. The next day, General Mikhail Alexeyev, the new supreme commander of the Russian army, arrested Kornilov, with whom he secretly sympathized, on the orders of Kerensky, who still thought that Kornilov intended to overthrow him. Kerensky had virtually handed his country to the Bolsheviks on a silver platter. On September 13th, the Bolsheviks gained a firm majority in the Petrograd Soviet for the first time. On September 16th, Trotsky was released from prison. He swung immediately into action, and on September 26th, 22nd, carried a motion of no confidence in the Kerensky government through the Petrograd Soviet by a vote of 519 to 414 with 67 abstentions. Next week, the Bolsheviks gained an absolute majority in the Moscow city elections and in the Moscow Soviet, mainly on the peace issue. Watching from Finland, Lenin decided that the hour of the Oblate Revolution had struck. On September 25th, he wrote to the Bolshevik Central Committee, quote, having obtained a majority in the Soviet workers and soldiers' deputies in both capitals, the Bolsheviks can and must take power into their hands. The main thing is to place on the order of the day, and this is underlined, emphasized, the armed uprising in Petrograd and Moscow. We will win absolutely and unquestionably, end quote. On October 11th, in a blazing article entitled The Crisis is Ripe, Lenin declared, quote, we are on the threshold of a world proletarian revolution, end quote and went on to review the overwhelming evidence of the breakdown of public order in Russia, the almost complete collapse of military discipline, the millions of unchecked desertions, the revolutionary militancy of the sailors of the Baltic fleet anchored just a few miles from Petrograd, the uprisings and poverty seizures in the countryside. All this opened and prepared the way for a communist takeover. To delay now, Lenin said, would be, quote, utter idiocy or sheer treachery. It would doom the revolution to failure, end quote. Two days later, October 13th, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared for the last time at the Covida area in Portugal and performed the miracle she had promised. The day dawned dark gray, an image of Christian Europe in that month and in that year. 70,000 people had come from all over Portugal to see the miracle, though none of them knew what it would be. 
Some of them are still alive. Have them build a chapel here in my honor, Mary said to the children. I am the lady of the rosary. Let them continue to say the rosary every day. The war is going to end. The crowd did not hear or see our lady, but about half the people in the crowd and some up to 25 miles away saw the sun revealed by the break in the clouds begin to dance in the sky to whirl violently, flinging off streamers of colored light. Then it seemed to plunge toward the earth. Many thought the world was ending. They screamed and sank to the ground, begging Jesus and Mary to save them. Then the sun climbed back to its normal place in the sky. It was the most spectacular, most abundantly recorded miracle since Jesus Christ walked the earth. Books have been filled with the testimony of the Fatima witnesses. We will quote only one, the most impressive. Avelina de, de Almedo, managing editor of O Seculo, the largest newspaper in Lisbon, Portugal's biggest city a Freemason and an unbeliever, hostile to the Catholic Church, who only that morning had written an article about the gathering at Fatima full of supercilious doubt, condescending analysis of the state of mind of the believers assembling there and barely veiled hints of how the clergy and commercial interests were allegedly planning to profit from the reported apparitions. But um, Almeida has seen the miracle, and was honest enough to report exactly what he had seen. Now quoting Almeida, a spectacle unique and incredible if one had not been a witness of it. One can see the immense crowd turn toward the sun, which reveals itself free of clouds at full noon. Great star of the day makes one think of a silver plaque. It is possible to look straight at it without the least discomfort. It does not burn, it does not blind. It might be like an eclipse, but now bursts forth a colossal clamor, and we hear the nearest spectators crying, Miracle, miracle, marvel, marvel, before the astonished eyes of the people whose attitude carries us back to biblical times, and who, full of terror, heads uncovered, gaze into the blue of the sky. The sun has trembled, the sun has made some brusque movements, unprecedented and outside of all cosmic laws, the sun has danced, end of quote. Remember, that was an unbeliever who saw it himself. The cosmic crisis of that year, 1917, the year of the ultimate revolution, resounded not only on earth, but also in heaven. On October 20th, Lenin's article, The Crisis is Ripe, calling for immediate revolution, was published in the Bolsheviks newspaper, Workers' Path. That same day, Lenin finally returned to Petrograd from Finland. News of Lenin's return flew among the Bolshevik leaders. Late in the evening, October 23rd, 12 of the 21 members of the Bolshevik Central Committee met secretly at the apartment of Nikolai Sukhanov. They were invited by his wife, Galina, who was a Bolshevik, while he was a Menshevik. She got him out of the house during the meeting and did not tell him about it until afterward. Name after the name of that October night assembly looms athwart the grim, grim history of the 20th century like gigantic shadows cast by a flickering fire. Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, 
common infant Zenobiev, Lenin's companions in Swiss exile, Sverdlov, who at Lenin's direction signed the orders for the murder of the Tsar and his entire family and gave his name to the city in the Ural Mountains where they died. Felix Zerzhinsky, first leader of the Soviet secret police, which began as the Cheka and ended as the KGB. The meeting began at 10 o'clock in the evening. Outside was an icy drizzle. Lenin came to the meeting through it, disguised in a wig and glasses, his trademark beard shaved off. The meeting went on for more than five hours. Lenin had made up his mind. The moment toward which he aimed his entire life had arrived. He hammered down all questions and all doubt. Revolution now. Seize power now. Wait for nothing and no one. Set a date. Delay his death. Kamenev and Zinoviev, who had been his closest friends, knew Lenin well enough to be inured to his vehemently dominating personality and remained convinced that there was more apathy than revolutionary fervor among the Russian masses. Finally, about three o'clock in the morning, a vote was taken. It was ten to two for revolution. Only Kamenev and Zinoviev voted no. Writing with a blunt lead pencil, on a square sheet of paper torn from a child's copybook, Lenin scrawled a resolution the majority had approved. Quote, recognizing, therefore, that an armed uprising is inevitable and that the time is fully ripe, the Central Committee proposes to all party organizations to be guided accordingly, end quote. But despite Lenin's urgings, no date was set, and Kamenev and Zinoviev were so convinced that he was wrong that they resolved to carry on the fight against this decision to the larger groups in the party. Six days later, at another meeting of the Central Committee in the Petrograd suburb of Lesnoy, this time with delegates present from the Petrograd Party Committee and various Communist Factory Committees, and labor unions, the decisions of October 23rd were confirmed by a vote of 19 to 2 after another long hammering speech by Lenin, pacing the floor, shouting so that his harsh voice would carry over the sounds of rain falling heavily on the roof. He spoke for nearly two hours. Quote, the masses have expressed their confidence in the Bolsheviks, he cried, and they demand of us not words but deeds. A decisive policy of struggle against war and economic ruin, end quote. A participant tells us that his listeners, Lenin's listeners, hung on his words in, quote, in rapt silence, holding their breaths. Kamenev and Zinoviev, still in opposition, did not pick up a single vote. Lenin departed in triumph. Trotsky had not attended the October 29th meeting at Lesnoy. in Lesnoy. He was too busy. He had been preparing for the revolution Lenin had decided on. Ever since October 23rd, he had been going from one barracks and factory to another, summoning up all his extraordinary powers of oratory, speaking constantly and to great effect to the soldiers and workers. Most of them now felt they knew him personally and were ready to follow wherever he might lead. He was thrusting himself in his party 
in to fill the void created by the anarchy now stalking the land. The ideal lieutenant for Lenin in making his ultimate revolution. The day before the Lesnoy meeting, representatives of the Petrograd garrison meeting in the Smolny Institute, a former finishing school for aristocratic young women, had voted no longer to obey any military movement order of the Kersky government. On the day of the Lesnoy meeting, Trotsky, speaking under the name of the Military Revolutionary Committee he had just formed under the Petrograd Soviet, issued a test order to the Sestroresk Arms Factory to issue 5,000 rifles to the Bolshevik Red Guard. His order was obeyed without question. Zinoviev, who had not supported the original vote for revolution, now told Sverdlov that he would support the uprising if they could show him how they proposed to stay in power for just two weeks. This brought a fierce reply from Vladimir Antonov Ovsienko of the Military Revolutionary Committee. Quote, it's pointless to argue. There's no way out. We're already in battle. We must conquer or die, end quote. They went on to report to Lenin. Vladimir Nevsky of the Revolutionary, Military Revolutionary Committee told Lenin the revolutionary sailors at the naval base at Kronstadt could not handle their ships well enough without officers to bring them up the narrow channel of the neighbor river. They would have to come by train. Podvoisky told him that at least 10 more days were needed to gain, get more support for the uprising of the Petrograd garrison, in the Petrograd garrison. Lenin dismissed all thought of delay. The all-Russian Congress of Soviets was about to meet. It must be confronted with the Bolshevik Revolution as an accomplished fact, which it would then confirm. Now is the time to assign units to seize bridges and communications. Listening to his leader, Nevsky was overcome, quote, by the iron logic of his Marxist method, his unwavering firmness. He felt, quote, a great surge of faith in our cause. Of my doubts, not a trace was left, end quote. So Lenin personally led his ultimate revolution to triumph in the capital of Russia. There was so much talk about the uprising that it could hardly be concealed from Kerensky. But Kerensky was absurdly overconfident of his ability to deal with it. He ordered Lenin's arrest and a search for him by the army, only to be told that there were not enough reliable soldiers in the Petrograd garrison to make such a search. If there were not enough reliable soldiers in the Petrograd garrison to search for Lenin, how were they ever going to put down an uprising he would lead? Bureaucrats drew up a list of likely targets for attack, which included virtually all the targets which the revolutionaries planned to seize, but also the Smolny Institute, which the Bolsheviks already controlled. It was their headquarters, but apparently Karen's government did not even know that. At a cabinet meeting November 4th, Kerensky talked of liquidating the Military Revolutionary Committee. But on learning that the Petrograd garrison commander, Colonel Georgi Polkovnikov, had reopened negotiations with it, he took no further action at this time. Colonel Polkovnikov proved no better a negotiator than a commander. Once again, as so often in the French Revolution, the historians long for one resolute man of action, a Chesty Puller, a Red Mike Edson, a George Patton, to make his mark on the course of events. 
but in Russia in 1917, as in France in 1972, no such man appeared. Russia had only Colonel Polkovnikov, who took three days to learn of the distribution of the 5,000 rifles from the Sestoresk arms factory to the Bolshevik guard, and by the time he did learn of it, it took him 24 hours to post a guard on the factory. By then, all its arms were gone. Tuesday, November 6th, the last day of freedom for Russia in 74 long and terrible years. Dawn gray with rain and fog. The Bolshevik Central Committee made it 8 o'clock in the morning in the corner room of the third floor of the Smolny Institute. His members knowing... The revolution was underway. Trotsky snapped out assignments. Zhirinsky post offices and telegraph stations. Bubnov railways. Millions in the food supply. Sverdlov watched Kerensky in the provisional government. Kamenev, ready to assist despite his misgivings, went over the left social revolutionaries. Military action in Petrograd to be under the control of the Military Revolutionary Committee. 24 machine guns were placed on Smolny's roofs. A cannon was placed in, in its courtyard. And a company of troops was brought up to guard it and a firewood barricade built. At 9 o'clock, in the name of the Military Revolutionary Committee, Trotsky issued Military Order Number 1 to the regimental commanders of the revolutionary militia in Russia. This order marked the coming of the Communist Revolution to Russia. Quote, danger threatens the Petrograd Soviet. During the night, counter-revolutionary plotters attempted to call up cadets and shock battalions from the suburbs. The newspapers, soldier, and workers' road had been closed. We order you to put your regiment into a state of military preparedness and to await no orders. Any delay or non-execution of this order will be regarded as treason to the revolution. For some reason, Lenin had not yet been called by the Bolshevik party leaders to join them at the Smolny Institute. He knew that the hour on which a whole century would turn, he thought it was the whole world forever, had struck. At six o'clock in the afternoon, he sent them a message, quote, everything now hangs by a thread. This matter must be decided this very evening, this very night, end quote. Receiving no reply, at 10 o'clock he decided he must go himself, uninvited, unexpected, accompanied only by his Finnish bodyguard, Aino Raja. He put on his wig, covered it with a shapeless, battered workman's cap, and tied a large handkerchief around his face. The two men crossed the Litany Bridge over the neighbor river. On the bridge they were stopped by two mounted guards who demanded their passes. They had none. Roger pretended to be drunk, and the guards rode away. Alone in the windy night with their dark destiny, the two strode on. One alert guard that night, arresting the totally unprotected Lenin in the streets of Petrograd, could have changed the whole course of history.
was not to be. Lennon and Roger reached Smolny untouched. For ten minutes, they were unable to get inside for lack of passes. Finally, they were pushed inside by the crowd behind them. Incredible as it may seem, Lennon had never been to the Smolny Institute. He did not know where his own party offices were. He had to wait until Roger found Trotsky and Stalin to take him there. He found them. Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin sat down together at a table. It was about midnight. At the very moment, that very moment, Menshevik leader Theodore Dan, attending a meeting of the All-Russian Committee of Soviets, strode in with a bundle of sausage and cheese sandwiches. He offered one to the still bewigged Lenin, whom he did not recognize. Then he suddenly recognized him and sprang out of the room. Not so easily would Theodore Dan escape Lenin's vengeance. When in power, Lenin was to kill all the non-Bolsheviks political leaders throughout the vastness of the Russian Empire. This was Lenin's revolution, and it was fitting and inevitable that he should lead its final charge to victory. Despite a widespread assumption among historians that Trotsky was in full charge of operations that fateful night, the evidence indicates that he simply placed the winning weapon in Lenin's hand and it struck it, that it struck at Lenin's command. In the words of Robert V. Daniels, author of the most detailed and accurate history of the October Revolution, quote, if the operations of the Military Revolutionary Committee during the night of November 6th-7th are carefully followed, it is apparent that a marked change in tone and direction occurred after midnight. A new spirit of bold and systematic attack appeared, exemplified in orders to military units to seize outright the public institutions that were not yet under the control of the Military Revolutionary Committee. Up to this point, the moves of the Military Revolutionary Committee had all been peaceful or defensive. Lenin apparently provided the catalysts to turn otherwise to turn the Soviet's cautious defenders into the aggressive heroes of insurrection. By 9 o'clock in the morning, November 7th, Lenin knew that he had won. The ultimate, his ultimate revolution had prevailed. The turning point of the 20th century had been reached. He wrote a proclamation in his sharp Tracing handwriting, which one scholar has likened to strings of barbed wire, announcing victory. Quote to the citizens of Russia, the provisional government has been overthrown. Governmental power has passed into the hands of the organ of the Petrograd Soviets, which stands at the head of the Petrograd proletariat and garrison. The cause for which the people are struggling is the immediate proclamation of a democratic peace the elimination of landlord property and land, workers' control of industry, the creation of a Soviet government. That cause is assured. Long live the workers, soldiers, and peasants' revolution, end quote. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Lenin and Trotsky stepped to the platform in the assembly hall of the Smolny Institute to address the now mostly communist remaining members of the Petrograd Soviet. Trotsky's voice was bell clear. Lands cold and hoarse, but the harsh words had a terrible power, foreshadowing the paean of destruction 
Lenin was the mate to his former friend, Georgie Solomon, quoted in my lecture last month, introducing Lenin. Quote, comrades, the workers and peasants' revolution, which the Bolsheviks have been saying all along was inevitable, has been accomplished. What is the significance of this workers' and peasants' revolution? Above all, the significance of this coup lies in the fact that we will have a Soviet government, our own organs of power, without any participation whatsoever by the bourgeoisie. The old state apparatus will be smashed to its foundations, and a new apparatus of administration, represented by the Soviet organizations, will be set up. Will be set up. From now on, a new era is beginning in the history of Russia. In Russia, we must now undertake the construction of the proletarian socialist state. The rest is anticlimax. We need not follow in detail the story of the fall of the Winter Palace, when what was left of the Kerensky regime, once the provisional government, made its last stand. It was the kind of absurd human comedy which sometimes impinges upon the greatest and most solemn events, which would be amusing if not played out on this occasion against the backdrop of illimitable tragedy. The 20-minute communist ultimatum, which ran out while General Bagratuni was trying to decide what to do with it, so that he was immediately captured. The communist guns in Peter and Paul Fortress, which could not fire because no one had cleaned them since March. The government's machine guns, which could not fire because they had no breech blocks. The 300 Cossacks who saddled their horses and rode away. The telephone cry for help from the palace to all, 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 and the response of 300 members of the non-communist Petrograd Duma who marched out, quote, to die together with the government, end quote, for two blocks until they met a handful of communist sailors and promptly dispersed. In the final storming of the huge 1,500-room winter palace during which most of the stormers became lost in the labyrinth of corridors and the remaining principal officer among the defenders, Lieutenant Alexander Seneguba, became so exhausted running up and down the corridors that he collapsed in a chair, saying, I'll die here, but I can't run another step. As for the bombardment of the Winter Palace by the cruiser Aurora, celebrated in communist legend in Russia until communism fell, its guns did fire, but the shells were blanks. The Aurora had no light ammunition on board. When I visited Leningrad, it was then, as it was then called, in 1988, the cruiser Aurora, quote, which bombarded the Winter Palace, end quote, was still a prime tourist attraction, even for Russia, even more for Russians than for foreign visitors. The Winter Palace fell at 1.50 a.m. November 8th. Lenin's revolution had taken approximately 26 hours. A handful of revolutionaries had been, killed, had been killed. So far as any historian has been able to determine, not a single man in Petrograd died to save Holy Mother, Mother Russia from capture by the supreme political evil of the age, the sworn enemy of God and man. It was Rasputin's ultimate.